0: Well, thank you, Brother Derek, for those wonderful gospel songs. And it's so good to see each of you here in the house of God tonight. Thank you for attending, for your support. We're going to pray and hear from the Word of God, and we've already enjoyed this wonderful singing. So, uh, I can say with David, it's good when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. It's good, isn't it, to be together with God's people so good to see you thank you again for coming now we certainly do want to continue to pray for our pastor and and wife miss carla that we love both of them of course dearly and we know that you do continue to pray for them also i would have you pray for my wife she is in florida she's celebrating she and june martin are born on the same day and they're celebrating their birthdays they're going to be down there for a few days so pray for Florida. I mean, pray pray for them that they'll they'll be all right and come back. Uh, <laughs> I talked to her earlier. They're having a big time, and I'm glad that they are. Uh, most of the day, I've been working on. I'm publishing two books, and uh, I'm getting them ready to go to the printer. So I've been working off and on on those two books. And also, uh, when the pastor called, I began. Uh, trying to be serious about something to share with you tonight. And uh, so between the two sessions with my books, I uh, examined the book of Galatians again, and I wanted to share with you from chapter number six, Galatians chapter six. I thought that would be something good and edifying for the people of God, and I had it with me. I brought it tonight, but I just couldn't get peace about it. I just... Felt like that just simply wasn't what uh, would be in order, what God wanted. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number one. And I'd like to speak to you on this subject tonight, the necessity of the ascension. The necessity of the ascension. Why is it so important that Jesus had to go away? Why did he go back to heaven? There are three basic reasons among many others that I'd like to share with you. Simple thoughts tonight about the reasons for the ascension. Let's pray together and then I'll read verses 4 through 11. Acts chapter 1, the necessity of the ascension. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the privilege of being in the house of God. And Lord, also for the great privilege to be here in this pulpit from which a Bible preacher, a Bible teacher always comes and shares with us God's Word. We thank you for our under-shepherd and for Miss Carla and all that they do here, these wonderful grace gifts that you've given to Houston Baptist Church. Lord, we love them, we thank you for them, and we ask that you might heal them speedily and they'd be back with us very soon. And now, Heavenly Father, you know I searched my heart and look towards your throne for the message, the teaching, the lesson that would be pleasing for you for, uh, from you tonight for your people. Lord, I wanted to share something that would be exhorting and edifying, something that you'd be pleased with and that they could share and, and to take home with them and would help them throughout the week. And Lord, you, I feel, have directed me here to speak on this glorious event of the ascension. And I just ask the Holy Spirit, without whose help I shall be a tinkling cymbal and a sounding brass, please help me tonight to share with your people these thoughts. And I'll praise you and thank you in Christ's name, amen. Acts chapter one, verse number four. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time Restore again the kingdom to Israel. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in, the, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, Why stand ye uh, gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, as you've seen him go into heaven. What we have here is the inspired account by Luke, the beloved physician, of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, the other Gospels mention it, but not quite like Luke does. If you remember, uh, the Gospels have given us a picture of the birth, the early life, the work of the Lord Jesus, and uh, the suffering that he did, not only on Calvary, but uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, And then at Pilate's whipping post, we can trace his steps as we examine the Synoptic Gospels. His birth as he identified himself with you and me in our humanity. He grew into manhood and entered into his ministry at the age of about 30. And called his disciples, 12 of them, and gave them special powers and authority, and began a teaching ministry in their lives. He taught them for three and one-half years. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to those golden words as they fell from his lips, and then watching him? Luke says in his gospel that we set our gaze, we fixed our gaze up upon him, we watched him, we scrutinized him, we watched everything that he did, and of course, in that, those events, he taught them also. But for three and a half years, he taught those men and uh, prepared them for what was uh, going to happen uh, in the very near future. And then, of course, as it came time and drew near for his great passion, We see him in the garden of Gethsemane there praying until his sweat became as great drops of blood. We watch as the betrayer, Judas, led a group of thugs out to arrest our Lord and to take him to that kangaroo court that, by the way, violated their own laws and rules. The Sanhedrin could not meet at night, but they did because They wanted to crucify the Lord Jesus so badly. Then when morning came, they delivered him to Pilate, and Pilate brings him out to the people, and they, in a scornful manner, berated him and wouldn't accept him, rejected him, and so Pilate then sent him to the whipping post, and there he was scourged. The Bible says, with his stripes, we're healed. We're spiritually healed. Physical healing isn't uh, mentioned there. It doesn't mean that. But we're physically healed uh, spiritually healed with those stripes. And then when they took him down from the whipping post, we can trace his steps in blood as he walks to that lonely hill of Golgotha, Mount Calvary, and there dies as a substitutionary sacrifice for you and me, paying our sin debt and the sin debt of the whole world. They took him down, put him in that borrowed tomb, and in three days, God the Father raised him by the Holy Spirit, raised him from the dead. He stepped out of that tomb, appeared to those that he had chosen, Mary, Mary Magdalene, uh, his disciples, Individually, And then over 500 brethren at one time saw the resurrected Christ. Then for 40 days, he uh, teaches them, he meets with them, and teaches them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. On the 40th day, unbeknownst to them, I'm sure, He leads them out on the opposite side of Bethany. And after having given them final instructions, he blesses them, lifts those nail-scarred hands, and in their presence, he ascends visibly, bodily, back into the heavens. I've positioned myself many times, I guess you have, In my suppositional mind, I've put myself there, standing there with those disciples, watching him as he goes far away into the heavens. No doubt their eyes are as big as saucers. If they were like me, they'd be standing there with their mouth gaped open because they'd never seen anything like this before in their lives. He is the heavenly astronaut. No ships, no rockets, but he ascends with his own mighty power from earth and he goes back into the heavens. They watch him and strain their eyes until a cloud receives him out of their sight. They're so dazzled by this event, so shocked by what they've seen, that they don't know what to do. They have probably forgotten what he's just told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And so God knew they'd be that way, and I guess you and I would have been too if we'd just experienced such an event. So he sends two angels. They robe themselves with humanity, stand down beside those men as they're looking into the heavens, searching for the one that's just gone away. And they say to these men, these brethren, Why stand you here gazing into the heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken away from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. But you, you be about his business. What did he tell you to do? Wasn't it that you should go to Jerusalem and there wait for the descent of the Holy Spirit that he promised in John's Gospel Chapter 14, didn't he tell you that? Shall you remember what he said? I've often wanted to preach a message on shall we remember his words? So off they go. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. It would have been a tremendous blessing to have been counted among that number and just listened to the conversation that went on in that little upper room after they left Bethany and went to Jerusalem. Can you sort of imagine with me, let your imagination run wild for just a moment with me, as they were discussing what they had just seen and experienced? Maybe somebody asked Simon Peter, because he was always leading the guys. Peter, did did, did it actually occur? Did we actually see what I think we saw? I mean, they'd been with him all this time. They'd seen miraculous things occur. They'd seen him heal the sick miraculously. They'd seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him do all of these wonderful works. But this event was the crowning glory. This event superseded everything that ever seen or ever imagined. There they watched as this man that they'd put their hope and faith and trust in was leaving them now and going back to his father's right hand where he sat down on the father's right hand evermore until he comes back for you and me in the rapture. I would have loved to have heard the conversation that went on in that upper room just after that event. I wanted to talk to you tonight, if I might, for just a few moments on on the necessity of the ascension. We hear, and rightly so, men preaching about the death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel. That's what God uses to save men and women, boys and girls with. But we don't hear a whole lot about the ascension, nor the reasons for the ascension. So I thought it might be refreshing. It might be a change. It might be encouraging to you. If we mentioned two or three things that necessitated that great event, we call the ascension. So he leads them out now, and in their own vision, beside them they watch as he's taken back into heaven. He ascends bodily and visibly. Could I say this to you? That passage there, a lot of men misunderstand it. That's not about the rapture. Some men use that and say, he's coming back just like he went away. This is about the rapture. No, no. No. He ascended from the Mount of Olives there. And in the second coming, he's coming back to the Mount of Olives and in the rapture, he's coming in the air. And in the revelation of the apocalypse, he's coming to meet people here upon the earth. In the rapture, we're going to meet him in the air. So don't confuse the two. This particular passage can be about, and as I think about, the second coming. This same Jesus shall so come in like manner. So he's going to come back. Listen to this. He's gonna come back in the rapture, but he's only gonna be visible to those who are born again. Nobody who's lost will see him. In the rapture, it'll happen so quickly, in a moment. That's an atomic second, by the way. The Greek word is atomos, an atomic second. Can you imagine how fast that is? An atomic second. Before you can blink your eyes, he's come and gone with you and me. That will happen the very next thing on God's calendar is the rapture. But when he comes in the apocalypse, the revelation, he'll come back to the Mount of Olives and the Bible says every eye shall see him and every knee shall bow. So the two events can't be the same. He's coming back, listen, visibly, Visibly and personally, bodily, as he went away. Now, that same Jesus that went away from us, nail scarred hands, pierced side, nail prints in his feet, crown of thorns that made the scars around his head, we'll see him as he is, John said. And we'll get to admire him and worship him and And touch him and glorify him in all eternity. He's coming back just like he promised he would. But the ascension was necessary for three things, three reasons. And if you want to mark them down, I'll slow down a little and you can take them down. First of all, the ascension was necessary because man needed a mediator. You see, none of the Old Testament people enjoyed a mediator. Now, Moses was some sort of a mediator between Israel and God, but only in a part of that uh, ministry. He could never make men and women right with God. And without a mediator, without someone to go between God and me and God and you, We could have never been joined to God again. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, it separated the human family from God. The Bible says that your sins have separated between you and your God. How does mankind ever get back in union, back together with God? Well, there's no man that could do it. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, so God himself came to this earth, took upon himself our humanity, and paid the price so that you and I can be set at one again with God. I know many of you, probably all of you, read the New Testament. You've come across the word peace. I'm certain of that. In fact, the Lord Jesus used it many times. That word peace is from the word erirne. And guess what it means? It means to be set at one again. Our peace came about because we have a mediator in the heavens that can go between God the Father and us. He is our kinsman redeemer in the fact that he identified with us in our humanity. So now he can represent you and me in the heavens. In other words, he took a hold of God the Father with one hand and the human family with the other. And he brought us back together again. Our mediator. Now notice please, and this is a very important point that I want you to get. There's only one. Nobody else is a mediator. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. And I'm not trying to down anybody or be critical, but I want you to listen to me. This is a Bible doctrine. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus. Now, I didn't write that. I'm just sharing it with you. One God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Well, I don't think you have to even have uh, any kind of an education. All you have to do is listen to know that when the Bible says one, it means what? One. One. So that would exclude anybody else and everybody else who claims to be a mediator. Now there's a great religious denomination upon our earth today, has been here since 325 AD when Constantine began it, that preaches and teaches that there's a woman, her name is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and that she is also a mediatrix. In other words, she can go to God for you. I remember several years ago when the Pope, he's dead now, there's another new Pope, but when the Pope got shot, the people who were filming him, uh, one of the commentators later said, as we were taking the Pope to the hospital, and he was trying to pay him a compliment, he was saying that, The Pope is praying to Mary and asking Mary to help him. My friend, if I was pretty close to death, I wouldn't be praying to any woman or any man except the Lord Jesus. There's only one God. Look at that word one. And one mediator between God and me and the man Christ Jesus. There are several words in the Greek New Testament translated one in our English Bible, there is the word "mia," and that means one at a time. Are you listening? First Timothy chapter three, the Bible says that the bishop ought to be the husband of one wife. And if Paul had used the word that I'm going to use here in just a moment, it would have meant one and one only. But he didn't use that word; he used the word "mia." And that word, according to the greatest Greek scholar other than Jesus that's ever walked in shoe leather, Dr. A.T. Robertson, says clearly one at a time. Because it was written in a polygamous background. Oh, don't that destroy a lot of Baptist theology and doctrine and and, uh, partiality. Huh? One at a time, ooh. My goodness, I thought if a man married more than once, he couldn't be ordained. Well, that's what some of us teach. But is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely, unequivocally, no. And there's going to be churches that will stand before God and give an account for denying great men who have had the misfortune of a scriptural divorce, the right to serve as a deacon or as a preacher, that word one is meah, it means one at a time. But Paul didn't use the word, or Luke didn't, I'm sorry, Paul, he didn't use the word meah when he said one God and one mediator. He used that numerical word, is. Also the word in, which means one and one only. There's one God and one God only. And there's one mediator and one mediator only, the man, Christ Jesus. Listen, he ascended back to his father's right hand so that he could be our mediator. He could go to God on my behalf and say, Father, here is a sinner that's asking to be saved. Holding up those nail-scarred hands, he says, Will you accept him? And the father says, of course, my son, your blood was shed for just such an event. He's the mediator between God and men. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Thank God. Without the ascension, we'd have no mediator. Listen to what Job said in the Old Testament. He said, Oh, how I wish there was a daysman that could go between me and God. That daysman is a mediator. You see, before Christ died, there was no one to go to God on our behalf about our sins. But when Christ died, resurrected and ascended back to the Father, we have, thank God, a mediator. And you can share that with anybody. You can say, listen, there's somebody in heaven that will reconcile you to God. Won't cost you a thing. Just simply turn from your sin of unbelief and trust him. He is the mediator. But well, let's look at something else. Second thing, right quickly, that is very important about the ascension. The Bible tells us that we have a high priest. Now in that Old Testament, when God formed the nation of Israel from from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, he called out of that family a man by the name of Aaron. That was Moses' older brother. And he said, I want you to make clothes for him I want you to separate him and his sons. I'm calling out for me to minister for Israel some people, a group of people, a certain group of people that can only, they're the only ones that can minister to me. And I want you to, I want you to clothe him. First, I want you to wash him. I, I think old Aaron would probably be embarrassed, but God said, bring him out before the congregation and wash him. I'm certain, quite certain he had some sort of clothes on. But wash him in the sight of the congregation. And then those men and women that are cunning with their hands, I want you to have them to sew up some garments. I want you to dress him up. Before you put the cap on his head and the crown, I want you to anoint him. He shall be the high priest. He's the only one that can come behind the veil into the holy of holies. And he must come with the blood of bulls and goats once a year for the sins of Israel. Anybody else that would approach that holy place, that most holy place, would have experienced immediate death. Even the high priest, Aaron, they would tie ropes on his legs and let them trail behind him as he went into the most holy place so that if he died back there, they could pull him out of the most holy place and not go in and be killed themselves. Very holy in the Old Testament. Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews and if you will please, I'd like for you to turn there right quick to Hebrews chapter 10. Let me show you something. That Old Testament priest and the priesthood was done away with. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11, 12, and verse 21. It was only a type, Aaron was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who took his own blood. Aaron took the blood of bulls and goats. Christ took his own blood into the heavens and God the Father accepted it. Aaron was the type of Christ. But look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 11, I think it is. Hebrews 10, 11. And ever preached Standeth daily, ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices, meaning Old Testament sacrifices, which can never take away sins. I wish you'd underline that. There's a lot of preachers never have realized that. Which can never take away sins. But this man, meaning Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Look at verse 21. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw nigh. The second reason that necessitated the ascension is so that we would have a high priest. Now again, he's the only high priest. There is none other. God does not recognize any Old Testament high priest or any person living today that claims to be the high priest or a priest that can take away sins or can forgive sins for you or anybody. There's only one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our high priest over the house of God. He is the one that offered his own blood there in the heavens that God the Father accepted. It's the blood of that unconditional covenant that God has for you and me. That wonderful high priest. (coughs) This is the Son of God. And we have him as our high priest. I won't ask you to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11, The Bible says, but Christ becoming an high priest of good things to come. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 21, God says in testifying about his son, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'd love to have time to talk to you about him not coming through the line of of, uh, Aaron and so on, but I don't have that time. But I can say to you that as our high priest, he, the Lord Jesus, functions there in the heavens, ministering there in the heavens with his own blood for you and me. Not only that, but he, the Lord Jesus, made us the entire church, every saved person, lady, little girl, Boy, man, everybody that's saved is a New Testament priest. Boy, I can't hardly get over that. He's the high priest, and like Aaron's sons, born into Aaron's family, we must be born into his family. We become a kingdom of priests unto God. That's what John says in Revelation chapter 1. Listen carefully, and loved us, and have made us a kingdom of priests unto God. You, my friend, if you're saved, you are a New Testament priest. What does priests do? Well, let's see. They walk around in long robes and say holy things, and they they um, um, they're very religious. No, that's not quite what the Bible declares a priest is. A New Testament priest, that's you and me. We have the right and the responsibility, number one, to go to God for the people and to go to the people for God. That's what a priest does. Number two, We have the right and the responsibility as a New Testament priest to enter his presence and to pray for others. That's what a priest does. We have the right and the responsibility to offer sacrifices. First of all, our bodies. Romans chapter 12 says we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Have you done that? Have you come to God and said, here's this body that belongs to you, I'm offering it to you, do whatever you want to with it. That's what God expects out of priests. And a priest is to offer sacrifices unto God in the Old Testament, sweet smelling sacrifices. That's the sacrifice of praise. Now, I want you to listen to this preacher for just a moment. One thing that's missing in a lot of Baptist churches and one thing we could benefit from right here is God's people learning how to worship, how to praise Him. When we come together, there ought to be praise on our lips. I'm not talking about running up and down the aisles or acting like some kind of a nut, but I am talking about giving him praise. Did you know, listen to me, God inhabits the praise of his people and you shouldn't be one bit ashamed to lift your hand if you feel like it, to say praise God, to weep, to laugh, to praise him, to give him sacrifices of praise I'll tell you what I've seen down through the years. I've been at this thing probably longer than some of you are old. I've seen those cold, formal churches go through routines. I've preached at them. I pastored one or two where nobody would say amen Nobody would get happy. Nobody got excited about Jesus. Nobody lifted their hands and said, praise the Lord. And I've watched them in that cold, fragile, formal condition die. And I've also seen the other side of the spectrum where people have just gone absolutely crazy in the worship services. God's not in that either. But what we need in the Baptist denomination is the freedom of worship. Well-balanced worship and the preached word of God. That'll put some fire in us. That's what we need to see people saved. I've, I've compared those churches that have the freedom of worship with people that are filled with the spirit of God they come to the house of God ready to worship, I've compared them to those other churches where nobody knows how to worship, nobody says amen, it's all cut and dried, and I've seen in the churches that know how to worship, I've seen people saved Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and God's people go away happy, and fed, and rejoicing, and can't wait to get back in there. Now, I've seen that myself. So I can testify to that. I'm telling you that what we need is for God to breathe upon us. I'm not talking about a second or third blessing. Lord, I've had a thousand times more than that. I'm talking about people who will worship God in the freedom of the Holy Spirit, And then when you come down, walk right. Listen to the man of God as he preaches. Lay that to your heart. Apply that to your life. Come back ready to worship in the way that God ordained it to be so. He has ordained praise in his house. And we ought to do that, folks. We ought to learn how to worship. We're high priests. Or we are priests. He's the high priest. Number three, and I'll close. The third thing that's important about the ascension (laughs) is it gave us an advocate. An advocate. The best explanation I can give, I guess, for an advocate is if you get in trouble with the law. Sure, nobody here's done that though. But if you get in trouble with the law, you would normally go see a man by the name, a man or a woman, a lawyer, and they would go to court with you, and they'd do most of your talking. Because they know what to say. And a lot of times in the court of law, a man or a woman who's guilty of the crime gets to go free because the smart lawyer gets him off, right? It would be a real mistake for a man who's accused of murder to want to represent himself in a court of law. He's unequipped, unable to do the job. An advocate is someone that will go to bat for you, that will represent you. You say, why is that important? Because you and I are still sinners. Because you and I, at the very best, are still ones who come short of the glory of God. You see, I thought <coughs> when you got saved, you quit sinning. Where'd you hear that at? No, no. I'm not advocating a saint to sin. I'm just saying that we do and we shall. Until the change comes. When he changes this vile body and fashions it like his own glorious body, I'll be through with sin completely. Now I want you to listen real carefully here to me. I don't mind you repeating anything I say, just as long as you say what I said. Is that fair? (laughs) Although the redemption price has been paid, Although I'm as saved as I shall ever be, my redemption is not yet complete. Neither is yours. That won't be complete until he changes this body. Now he's already paid for it. We're potentially redeemed that way. He's already paid for it. But that event has yet to take place. Now if I die, Or if you die before Jesus comes, it's over as far as the sin nature is concerned. But as long as I'm upon this earth, listen to me, I'm trying to help you tonight. Satan will crawl up on your back and say, surely God couldn't love someone like you. Look at what you've done. You're supposed to be a Christian, blah, 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 blah. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now who was that that said that Jesus only died for the elect? John said that his sin that his blood was shed for the sins of the whole world. We have somebody that'll go between, that will be on our side, our advocate with the Father. So that when you sin and I sin, we can go to him and say, Lord, I've sinned right there. I said something I shouldn't have said. I thought something I shouldn't have thought. And I want to come before you and ask you to forgive me. He in turn is our advocate with the Father. He makes things right. Now listen, there's such a thing as Christian fellowship that goes two ways, this way and this way. John tells us about the fellowship of both ways, but he says this, if we confess our sins, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from A-double-L, all sins. In other words, if you confess the known sin, when the Holy Spirit points something out, and he will in your life, if you confess that sin, he will not only cleanse you from that sin, but from every other sin that you don't know anything about. Sins of ignorance. Isn't he wonderful? To keep you in fellowship. Now see, that's where our Armenian friends miss it. If you sin, you're lost again. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, if you've ever been saved, you're saved everlastingly. If you sin and confess it, he restores fellowship. That's different from relationship. Sin breaks fellowship, not relationship. Relationship is eternal. It's a gift from God. Keep the unborn. You're his child. But you can be out of fellowship. And I'm convinced that a lot of God's people come through those doors on Sunday morning. Dirty. Unclean. Saved, but out of fellowship. Fellowship because we love our pet sins and we hold on to them and when the man of God opens the word of God and the Holy Spirit points them out we're reluctant to deal with them but if we do that word if we confess if is the Greek word on it's a hypothetical it means maybe so maybe not but if we do he will keep us from being condemned with the world He will restore fellowship and an immediate confession keeps the fellowship unbroken so that you can continue having joy and peace in your life as a Christian. You'd be surprised, folks, how many people genuinely saved that know nothing about peace, that know nothing about the joy that there is in serving Christ, that they don't know nothing about the sweet, wonderful fellowship with him. It's because of unconfessed sins. He is our advocate. He will deal with our sins if we'll confess them. If we don't, he just takes his big belt off and gets us by the hand. And he hates to do it, but gives us a good strapping so that we're not condemned with the world. And then we'll confess and be back in fellowship. See, he's a great parent. He knows exactly what to do. The uh, the ascension was a necessity because it gave us a mediator. The ascension was a necessity because it gave us a high priest. The ascension was a necessity because it gave us an advocate with the Father. By the way, he loves you. He's on your side, and he'll talk to God the Father for you. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your tender mercy. Oh, God. Lord, how in the world can I share these things that you give me in just a few short minutes? Thank you for the wonderful patience of your people. Father, I pray tonight that these three wonderful things will be in our hearts and we'll give you glory and praise because of them. Thank you for your people. Help them tonight, Lord, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Would you take out your prayer?